We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us today is John McKenzie, writer and presenter for TIFO. Needs no introduction. If you have any interest in tactical analysis, I'm sure you follow him on Twitter. The topic today is public analysis versus club analysis. What's the difference between doing analysis on social media versus working for a club? And what can one potentially learn from the other? Great chat, love this. Two quick announcements before we start. One, if you're looking to learn more about tactical analysis and get involved in a new community of professional analysts, please check out APFA, Association of Professional Football Analysts, Educational Courses, Community and Career Progression, APFA.io. Link is in the podcast notes below. And then secondly, we've just released a new session ebook, Modern Soccer Coach 20 Scanning Exercises. If you're looking for some session ideas around awareness and decision making, please check it out now, modernsoccercoach.com slash shop. Okay, here is John. Enjoy. John, thanks for joining me today on this Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Finally, excited to get you on. Yeah, really excited to be on. It's a podcast that has taught me so much and uh, really enjoy your method of uh, presenting. So really excited to be on today. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted and once that you even listen to it. So that's huge for me. The topic we're going to go through is public versus club analysis. And it's really good timing because we've had a few people on chatting about, even last week, we had Joe Hickman on talking about just the difference. He almost came through Twitter. There's an, a lot of analysts in the world that have come through Twitter, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to. Oliver Gage has been pretty vocal about the quality and, and obviously with his starting up APFA, the quality of an public analysis like for me when I think public analysis you are the leading light of public analysis with the volume and the quality that you're able to get out with TIFO and all the quality work you're doing how do you measure or assess the the overall community of analysis on on the on the social platforms at the moment I think to kick off I would like to emphasize that I am just one public analyst amongst a, a massive field of of public analysts and by no means do I think that I do things the best way or by no means do I think that I have the definitive um, say on what does and doesn't constitute good public analysis I think it's important to get that that out of the way Um, and I think I I enjoyed the the episode with with Ollie that you mentioned there actually Uh, and Ollie has is a remarkable guy Canadian football would not be where it is right now without Ollie Gage so um Again, I, I just wanted to caveat with, with any comments that I make off, off that basis. But I think the, 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 what prompted Ollie to go in that sort of direction is very much to do with the way that he's arrived in analysis. Um, and he's taken a route that is, um, I don't think, available to a huge amount of people. Right. So he went through the US college system, ended up going into a, a club from from that sort of background. And, and that's great if you can do it. And I think it's really, really great that that, that pathway exists. But for most of us that isn't a viable option. And so um, I think public analysis 
emerges from out of a context where if you're wanting to get a job in some sort of performance analysis um, pathway, you have to make a name for yourself in some way. And that is why so many people go into social media world as a, as a, as a context from which to show what they can do. Now, that means that um, with that in mind, there, there's obviously two very different contexts within which people are then doing their analysis. So if you're a club anal analyst, you're going into a club, your audience is set, it's the backroom staff, it'll be the players to a certain extent as well. Whereas for public analysis, your audience is effectively like everyone, anyone, and you are trying to achieve something quite different, I think, in, in, your, um, in your expectations for what you want to get out of that, mainly exposure, people seeing what you can do and seeing that it's good and, and that, that it can work. Now, there's obviously like, that's a Venn diagram, right? There's going to be overlap between what good public analysis looks like and what good club analysis looks like. You've got to be presenting and communicating in a, in a helpful way, teaching people more about the game. But obviously a club analyst is working towards a goal, which is to make their, their team better. Um, whereas me as a public analyst, I just don't have that. My, my goal is to help people to understand what's going on in the pitch a little better and hopefully give them a heightened enjoyment of, of, watching, of watching football. And I think that's where a, a lot of the conf confusion comes in because like a lot of club analysts have to work really hard to get any buy-in at their club sometimes. Um, there's so many competing interests and you, know, you can do the best analysis work in the world and your audience may either dismiss you or may just be bored and sitting there wanting to, you know, be anywhere other than in the in the video room with you. Um, and so I think there, there can be a little bit of frustration in terms of the club analysts looking then at public analysts like me, who there's absolutely nothing at stake in what I do. And I get a, a big social media following. I get a lot of vocal respect in social media spaces and effectively like whether or not I do a good job or a bad job on, on my ana analysis it doesn't really matter so I think it's, it's important to recognize that, that there is that tension there and I, I agree with Ollie that the problem then becomes that people who are simply doing the analysis for exposure can sometimes miss the fact that you know it is hard work to get to a point where you are trusted by a club to be able to do that kind of uh, analysis too so that's that's by way of of the context in terms of where i think the, the the field is right now i just think because of all of that there's just a lot of people who want to do public analysis because you can get a lot of kudos you can get a lot of respect from doing that um and it just means that you are going to end up with a huge field of people doing it. it's never been easier to do analysis it's never been easier to get hold of tape it's never been easier to represent what you think about games in, in visual form. It's never been easier to telestrate video. Um, okay, it's, it's, it's probably been easier to actually post tape online without getting copyright struck. But um, the, the context then is that there's a lot of people doing public analysis. And I think I, I think that's largely a good thing because the, the public space does self, I don't wanna say police because that's not the right word, but it does sort of um, self-modify in that sense. So the, the, hopefully the people who are best at what they're doing are gonna rise to the top. Um, that said, there is, I think sometimes a tendency for people to to um, empress new clothes their way to the top a little bit. So if you know a little bit of the jargon and you know what people are talking about, you can you can sort of pontificate on any topic whatsoever and and sort of get away with it. So, but I think in general, it's good that we have people in the public space doing analysis um, because I think in general that is going to educate an audience better um, and. 
I also agree with Ollie that it's great that we have um, well, we have this, um, this this union of analysts now forming, where we can make sure that we are holding that that space to account uh, more as well. But uh, in general, as a public analyst, I'm always going to be po positive about the the public analyst space. So um, yeah, I think it's it's a good thing that people can go out there and say, oh, I noticed this watching the game. What do you guys think? Part of me, whenever I'm whenever I'm interviewing Ollie and chat Ollie, that you're going, is he talking about me here? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but then uh, what I've I've thought about this a lot and and I actually think like I agree that Ollie that we need more depth and we'll talk about whether Twitter is the actual best platform for that or not we'll get into that but something that I feel that in coaching training exercises methodology whatever you want to call it this this happened in 2010 2012 that type of era Twitter was full of ideas and innovation around you know real openness to then all of a sudden people got annoyed people held back and now it's it's kind of actually kicked off back off again the last 12 months but i'd say for five years it was it was massive groupthink of people sharing the same stuff or non-contextual warm-up exercises that don't actually help people whereas i think and i'd hate to see analysis go that direction i actually like to see how people look at a game. Like you, you mentioned Carlin before, like Carlin posts so much. I just like to see if he posts, like he posts something the other day, Netherlands press and shape against the US and the two forwards. I, I, I missed that. Just something quick, missed it. I would hate to see analysis go down a road of people holding back on, on the platforms, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think this is a natural corollary of the fact that what happens, the, the pathway from social media to professional work is always going to be there'll be a boom there'll be a lot of really good people doing a lot of good work and then they'll all get snatched up by clubs and so you, you th th that public field then just sort of flattens out a bit and you're reliant very much then on people coming coming in and and making um making an, a name for themselves after that first wave has gone that's what's happened in the data analysis sphere right so um it was a very vibrant sphere because all of the great people were doing all of their stuff for free but as soon as they get snatched up then they they effectively leave the the space right because clubs aren't going to want them to be putting out their stuff for free um, and the same thing I think I'm sure is happening in terms of analysis so there's there'll be good an analysts out there they'll have a really good vibrant online community and people will will sort of coattails on that but then as soon as those guys get picked up by a club that that just evacuates the the, the space a little bit so I think that's happening I also think that tactical trends probably influence. This sort of thing as well. Like I, I feel as though I've made a name for myself off the back of talking a lot about off-ball stuff, which has got big in the last few seasons. If uh, and and the reason the reason I find it so interesting is because whenever I see a lot of public analysis, it's almost always possession focused. So like, what would it, what are this team trying to do in possession of the ball? Um, and so when you get people like Carl and me coming along and then doing a lot of stuff on the out possession stuff and it impacting the game a lot more now, I think people are like, oh, this is different and new and interesting. Um, so yeah, there's a space there that we've been able to to fill in that respect. So um, I think it's just naturally going to ebb and flow in in that sense. And um, the the I suppose the result of that is it when you get people who are able to operate in the public sphere and operate not behind a paywall, you just have to make the most of it and uh, and enjoy what they're putting out. Aha, uh -huh. brings us along nicely. Uh -huh. 
I mean, obviously, I, I I follow your work from a couple of things. There's the soccer side of it, but also I'm I'm fascinated by content and content that catches light and and what people are interested in. And when it, you posted recently about Brazil and and Titi's influence, I'm like this is this is brilliant. I was loving it, but then all of a sudden you had to go on and and do a big thread about how people took it the wrong way. And then, but that happens. I'm assuming to you a lot where you post something. You put it out, and yeah, it gets traction. But how frustrating is it where you're you're putting something that that you know is quality work, but people are just going, you know, you must get a hundred messages of people that aren't even in the same zip code as what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, to start off with the 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 thing that you mentioned with respect to Brazil, I think it's worth me mentioning that I do think I messed up. I, I think I didn't speak as clearly as I could, and that's one of the. Um, again, another one of the corollaries of being in the public space is that in certain situations you are going you, you to express yourself not, in not the best way, as I'm doing now, uh, ironically. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was, this was uh, comments that I made on a live stream, which, and, and it was very late at night. It was after the last World Cup game of the, of the day, was the, the Brazil game itself. And I was wanting to talk a little bit about some of the context that I hear Brazilian people talk about in terms of the national team, arguments about Chiche arguments about gaucho football, uh, which is, I suppose, a more pragmatic form of football that is has originated in a specific state in Brazil, which is contiguous with Argentina and Uruguay. And then that, that brings you into the, all of these debates about the, the, the colonial spread of football and the accepted norms of how football was played by Europeans moving the game into other countries and how that was responded to by um, the, the, the indigenous populations of those countries that they are they're spreading the game into and my and my intention of doing that was to say okay we're we're, we're in the english-speaking world here nominally um, english fans and we have a very specific conversation about our national game and the way that the the national team is is uh, structured and how it should play uh, and there are these conversations going on elsewhere in the world and and there are these debates about you know whether or not Chiche has bought into European influences too much, whether or not that is even fair to call it a European influence, if you can trace those influences back to the 1950s when, when the game really starts exploding in places like Argentina and Uruguay. Um, my intention with that is, is not to suggest that I have the, the best takes on, on these um, footballing um, locations. Obviously, I don't. Uh, but my, my intention is to expand the conversation, uh, bring some interesting ideas into the discussion. Um, but this is the thing, right? If I don't speak clearly, then the conversation gets sidetracked, necessarily so. Um, and and then I lose the force of what I'm saying. So um, the, the, the most important point there, I think, is for, to, is for people in the public sphere to be aware of the power of the, of the words that they're using and, and recognize that one, misspeaking in a live stream can impact the way that you're viewed in in for example brazil in this in this instance um that said yes the, there is also that element that you're talking about which is f- football is such a parochial game in that sense people have skin in the game and don't always agree with the the stuff that i'm i'm putting out and it can be frustrating when the overall intention of what you're saying is sidetracked into talking about something peripheral to to that overall intention. So, but I think again that that that's that's part of the 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 power that comes from being 
being a public face is that you have to accept the responsibility of, of, of speaking clearly. And communication, I think, is one of the most important tools in the toolbox of, a, of an analyst. I, you can analyze the, the game as well as you like. But if you can't communicate the ideas that you're seeing, there's no point you doing that. So again, I sort of see this as a subset of of keeping me on on track um, as part of my as, as part of my public facing work. So I'm, I'm sort of caught caught between those two things because I think it is it is good to be held accountable, and it's and it's important not to just be dismissive of people because it may be the case that they have a point. But you also do have to work in that sphere where people are going to try and find any little thing they can to 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 derail what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, it's tough because I, I really struggle with it, and it, and it holds me back from from posting more. Basically, is is could I be bothered with this? My, my wife, a lot of times, like just get rid of whatever platform that's annoying you. Um, but I get, yeah, but that's also you kind of sell your soul a little bit because you that drives content, drives the sponsorship, all that stuff. Here's an example for me. I posted something from. From uh, Luis Enrique's Twitch, which was asked one of the reasons why I'm devastated Spain are out because the Twitch stopped. Some brilliant stuff on it. And I posted a quote on, on one of my Facebook pages, and it was about coaches speaking the language of the players. And, and someone wrote, someone just wrote, Yeah, that's why he can't take penalties or something like that. And I just blocked, right? I, I can't. <laughs> you must get that multiplied by a thousand. Does that not? I know, like, it's great to hear that you see it as some learning and feedback. But is there not part of you that gets resentful or frustrated with that stuff? Absolutely, absolutely. And I th again, that, that my frustration there is that so much of what we have come to expect from engagement in social spaces is that it it has to become this zero sum game where people are people are disagreeing with one another and pulling people down for for being in in prominent positions in that in that sense and for me analysis tactics football is it should all about it should always be all about collectivism it should be about i watched this game and i saw this and maybe that thing isn't there maybe this is just me imposing something that isn't there um or maybe I, you know I, I have seen something but I then put this out into the public sphere and then people can say, oh, yes, this reminds me of this. Or, oh, did you also notice this? Or, oh, I thought your analysis was a little bit wrong on this. Have you thought about, have you thought about this aspect? That's what I want analysis to be. And to be, to be honest, a lot of the best analysis that I do is within a very close group of friends that I have. We have a WhatsApp group and we try to make an effort to watch a game back once a week. It can be anything. People can suggest a game that they thought saw something interesting in from any level um, and we can... We can we can watch it. We have a, a guy who works as a scout in the League of Ireland, so we'll occasionally watch their games, stuff like that. Uh, that's great. That's that's for me. That's what is so wonderful about about an analysis is that it it's a shared collective experience, and together we will get the best the best picture of the game. Uh, but Twitter and other social media platforms. I mean, Twitter is the one that I use, so I always defer to that. But that is not the attitude that you have there. You will. I I post something up, and people will so. The other day I posted something about England. I said, you know, there's a lot of people talking about England after they win against Senegal being like, oh, you know, this, that was a real statement win. We can now expect England to, to sort of go deep in this tournament. And I just pointed out that they played against very unrepresentative um, opponents on a number of different levels, both in possession and out of possession, compared to what they are now going to face going forward in this competition. So we haven't really learned about how 
good they are to go forward. And my, my point there is simply, you know, when we're analysing a team, we have to, we, we can only do so much with the evidence that we've got. The, the, the evidence that we have is this, this is what we can say about them, we can't really say anything more. But people immediately jumped on, onto this and were like, yeah, but what about Argentina? And what about, you know, Brazil? They've, they've done the same thing. Well, great. I absolutely make the same case for, for those teams. My point is simply that if we're talking about England beating Senegal, a team who are largely sitting in a mid-block, it's quite aggressive, it's player-to-player, player, it's the, exactly the sort of team that I would expect Gareth Southgate's England to be able to break down and then they win. All we can say about that is that against man-orientated mid-blocks that are quite aggressive, England have the the sort of the 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 flexibility, I suppose, to be able to break those down quite easily. But they're not going to come up against a team like that for the rest of the tournament. So the, the, the trick is, well, there's two tricks. One of them is to be able to use social media in a way that doesn't negatively impact you. And I'm probably not very good at that. And to be honest, my friendship group probably bear the brunt of, of the bad days that I have, right? But the, the important thing there is not to not allow these things to impact you. The important thing is to make sure that people don't realise that these things are impacting you apart from amongst your your, your close friends. Um, but the other thing as well is to just is to make social media work for yourself because I think it's very easy to be dragged into using it the way that other people use it. I've, even today, I've probably failed on that front because I've tweeted about Rodri's comments about Morocco and I could probably have just left it and not dragged myself into it. But for me... I, I just have a, a, a sort of hard and fast rule, which is only engage with people who are engaging with you in good faith. Because if people are engaging with you in bad faith, you're going to get nothing out of those in, those those interactions. So um, again, I'm no I'm no expert whatsoever in, in terms of social media. My friends are forever telling me not to read the comments. Uh, YouTube comments are brutal, like the the most brutal of the lot. Um, and I still find myself reading them, um, and there's nothing good comes from that. Dragons lie there. There's no, there's nothing to be had in those sorts of discussions. So, yeah, it, it's it's all about making social media work for yourself. And if, as you as you said, your wife your wife's approach is the correct approach, right? If if a, if a social media platform isn't working for you, then don't waste your time on it. Um, I obviously have to engage on social media to a degree because because I am a public analyst, but um, I do have to constantly reevaluate my my engagement in these platforms. Hello, coaches. We take a quick break here. If you enjoy analysis, and I'm sure you do, as you're listening to this interview, please don't forget to check out APFA. If you're looking to learn more about tactical analysis and get involved in a new community of professional analysts, APFA, Association of Professional Analysts, educational courses, online courses, online learning, career progression, APFA.io. Link is below in the notes. Check it out. Have a look. It's a new project that we're getting involved in, Modern Soccer Coach, and really excited to team up with some absolutely brilliant football minds who are trying to do stuff a little bit different in the analysis world. Please check it out, apfa.io. Thanks very much. Back to John. Another thing that's, again, interesting for me is you mentioned there about having to watch a game and get something from it. And obviously, there's games are like a bit like movies. There's always something there. But how challenging is it to, you know, to, you've got a choice. Premier League, you've got a choice of 10 games. You've got to pick one, I'm assuming, and go with it. Um, how do you make that choice? How difficult is it to pull and get it all together? My biggest fear as a public analyst is becoming banal and boring. Um, and so the way that I 
counter that is by making sure that I watch a lot of football. Um, now, that's what made me sounds like a really stupid thing to say because, like, I'm paid to be a football analyst, so watching football is kind of what I'm supposed to do. But I do try and make sure that I am keeping up with the the, the elite level because that's the level that we're going to always be covering because that's where the, the money comes from. But also making sure that I have a good sense of what is interesting um, around not only the elite, le elite level but some of the, the lower levels as well. Um, the way that I do that is by, as I've said, I have this friendship group where we have a WhatsApp group and we try and watch a couple of halves basically of, of different teams all the time and there's different people with different interests and different expertise in that in that group and it means that you'll you'll end up in going off down like rabbit holes right so um i'm, I'm really good friends with jamie hamilton who i'm, I'm sure you know yeah um, and jamie jamie has this fascination right now with fernando denise so i've watched a bit of brazilian football things like that that's really good for for my own um awareness of, of what's going on in terms of football tactics um, and, and that, that I think that's just a good advice for for anyone working in the in the analytics sphere. And I know that if you're working for a club, then you probably don't have a huge amount of scope to be watching outside of maybe your own league. Or if you're a if you're um, a, a scout for player recruitment, then the players that you're looking at. But I do think it's so useful to to watch stuff that doesn't seem useful, if that makes sense. Um, because I think the functionality is what gets us in the end. Like if I were to sit down and be like, what's, what are the things that will benefit me in my job most? I'd probably think, well, I'll watch the, I'll watch all of the top six Premier League sides this weekend. Um, but I have a, I have a decent understanding roughly of what they're doing. It's much better for me to then think, oh, okay, there's, I'm hearing interesting things about this coach coaching in Liga. Let's have a watch of that. And then you watch that and you're like, oh, I wonder if, if this sort of, idea has been seen anywhere else i can make a thread on something and people will and that's where the that's where social media comes into its own right just everyone's there and you can say this and people say no but not that this and and before i know it you know i'm, le I'm learning in that respect but in terms of my practice i watch everything double speed um i am not very good at like talent id or at least i think i'm okay at it if i like put my mind to it but i never really focus on individuals I'm always focusing on systems and stuff. So it, and it allows me to be able to watch games a little bit quicker. Um, and so that's what I do. I just try and I make sure that I'm watching football quite regularly. I watch it quite quickly so that like the way that I think about it is if a game's being, if a game's 90 minutes long and I watch it at double speed, it's 45 minutes long. So in the space of, a, of an actual game, I could watch two games, um, which may, may not necessarily be the best way of thinking about it. But also like you, when you actually skip through a game analytically, you jump through all of the free kicks and the corners and you're already down to about 30 minute halves. So yeah. it, it does go quickly, but yeah, that would be my advice to people. It's, and, and this is what frustrates me. A lot of people want to be in the public sphere. They want to be well-respected for what they do. They want to be well-respected for their analysis. That comes with hard work. Like I've got to where I've got through a huge amount of efforts on the parts of my friends who are smart football watchers and just sitting down and watching tape. And looking at pressing patterns and stopping the, the, the tape and going back over it and saying, right, what's going on here? And looking at a way that a team's trying to break down a low block and saying, what's going on here? It takes time and it's boring. Sometimes it is very, very boring. Uh, but you've just got to do that. And um, I think there's too many people in the in the public sphere who just want to get quick, quick hits. Um, but my advice to people is just watch watch the tape. If you watch the tape and you 
think about a game with a critical eye rather than watching it as a as a fan, then you will learn more about the game. And it's it's hard work, it's time consuming, but it will make you a better football analyst. The piece there about the boring piece, like I, I I'm concerned about that from a coaching community. You know, everything's so oh well, people want things so quick today, and and but how much of it? I wonder as a because the, the U.S. analysis community is, as you probably know, is very, very small. I worry about the fact that for our community to kind of kick on a level, that we've got to be having those conversations around. But that that takes time, right? Like you can't just skim through your your videos and say, "All right, I understand now what that press and trap is." And I, I wonder how we can get better at that. There for a community that's not maybe we're we're a bit of a microwave community at the best of times. I guess it depends on what the motivation behind that is. I think that analysts are always overworked. That's just a reality of the fact that, as we've, as we've talked about, there's so much to know, so much football happening, um, and there's always going to be innovation happening. It's, it's almost impossible to keep up with everything. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky in my job that there is, there's a lot of space for me to, to actually do just straight-up research. Um, and I'm given the space to be able to do that without feel, feeling guilty. Um, I'm also lucky in that I enjoy what I'm doing, and so that doesn't feel like it's hard. So some some evenings when I'm not, some days when I'm not working, I'll just spend the day doing a research day, just catching up on on stuff. Um, so that's that's the self motivated aspect. Not ideal if you're overworked, right? So the other aspect I think would be clubs recognizing that it's not enough for analysts to just be doing. The, the the really boring bread and butter stuff that that analysts have to do right so you're a performance analyst for a club they you're, you're working on opposition analysis and they're just making you watch five games a week breaking it down cutting it up and then and then passing it on um if your if your analyst is only doing that then they're not that useful in the long run because they're they're doing stuff that anyone could do and you shouldn't be developing analysts to be able to do just grun grudge work you should be you should be developing them to be creative individuals as well. And so if you are in charge of a, an, an analytics department, I know it's probably hard to do because you want to get what you feel is your bang for your buck for what you're you're doing. But I think it's, it's so important to make sure and encourage your analysts to have time to actually do self-directed research in that respect. It may feel like you're wasting money and time, but I think in the long run, if you develop those if, if you develop analysts who are curious, then you are developing better analysts than just bog standard work experience intern level analysts, which I think so many analysts end up being just through no fault of their own. I was trying to find there the, the podcast. It was a, a TFO podcast on data, how data has struggled to break through in the clubs. And I was fascinated by it because obviously my perspective is it is like analysis. Like I find sometimes what you're saying there, sometimes analysts are used just to cut clips and to give clips, but really the value, like you're saying, the true value of an analyst is to give an insight or a perspective or check or challenge, whatever, an opinion that the coaches have to help them win games. Their a message that I thought they missed in the podcast was the ability of the person to tell a story. And I think data has that as well. All right. It's a different story, bar chart, pie chart, whatever the visual is. What what your world as a public, and, and I'm in that as well, is that you learn how to either visualize or tell the story or get it really quick. I guess like it's a really tough question or it's a really hard question to phrase, but 
how do you do that there? How do you teach someone to, to, to basically land information quickly? I love you using the phrase telling a story because that is, if there's anything that I do before all of my analysis, it's, and this is great for, for, for my, for my job, like TIFO is all about selling stories. Right. Um, and so whenever I go into an, an, a piece of analysis, I'm always being told like, what's the title? How are we going to title this? So people will click on it. Um, how are we going to thumbnail this as well? But that's the, that's the basis of, of how we get clicks. Now that doesn't mean to say that we're, we're hunting for clicks in, in, in that sense. But the, the important thing that I will say is I make, I make the analysis, people are going to watch it. And then the job of the, of the, of the rest of the team is to make sure that people are clicking on that to watch the good analysis. And it's so important. So every time I'm doing anything, if I'm doing a thread, if I'm doing a video, if I'm doing a podcast, I'm always asking myself, right, maybe maybe a Talking Heads podcast, not so much, but like if you're doing a short piece of analysis within 10 minutes, you've got to be telling a story because people, I, I, said, I said before, I was distinguishing between club analysts and public analysts. Public analysts, their audience is just people on social media or whatever platform you're putting your content out on. That's it. Like, and, and if you lose that person, you don't have an audience. And so every time I'm putting something out, it is, right, this person needs to be, needs to be brought in because you've got an interesting hook and then you're telling them a story about how the game is done which doesn't digress doesn't go off in different directions but has a, a theme which takes you through the whole video get to the end of it and you ask the person what was that video about and they should be able to say this video is about how Manchester United beat Spurs because of their interesting pressing approach that is something as simple as that and that's that's for, for, for a public analyst, if they don't do that, they don't have an audience. Now, with, for a club analyst, they're always going to have the audience because that's that their audience is set. But that, the audience is never always going to be engaged. And so telling a story is equally important for, for those, for those um, analysts, if not more so because there's more riding on their audience actually engaging with the video and, and or the, the content, I should say. And so I think it's just super important for for people to realize I never put out an analysis, which is just, here's a game. And this is how both teams played. I never do that because it, it, I find it boring. I find it. I, I find that if I'm going to read a, a 30 minute piece on how a team played, I might as well just watch the first half at double speed. Cause I'm watching that in 20, 25 minutes. If I'm if I'm presented with a piece of analysis, which is like, here's a very specific thing that happened in the game and here's how it impacted the game. I'm like, OK, really interesting. I'm, I'm going to be um, clued into this. And the same should be happening at every level. I think that club analysts should be like, OK, we're going to I don't know how most club analysts will do it. But if they every context is going to be different, maybe you're speaking to the coach and you want to say, OK, here's three things that I think can impact the way that we approach this team. Something about the way that they press, something about the way that they play in possession. And then maybe like a third thing, maybe something a little bit more generic. So is their tempo too slow or something like that? If you, if you can go through that and, and just present three really nice little stories in a, in a row, package it up and say, these are these are the things I think this team are, are doing, then then your job as an analyst is, is, probably, uh, is probably complete. But it's hard to do. And again, this comes back to what we were saying before, right? If you if you give your analysts like five opposition and like games to watch and then clip up, et cetera. What, what they're going to do is they're going to watch through those games, clipping as they go. They're not, they're not necessarily thinking about the overall picture. They'll be like, okay, I've noticed a bit of this. I've noticed a bit of that. If they had the time to just watch those games and then say, 
right, these are the these are the things that I've noticed. The, these are the stories that I want to tell about it. I think it would it would it would make that a much a much better approach to to the whole um, the job of, of of performance analysis. But whether or not that's a realistic approach, I don't know. And that, and this is you know sort of, sort of where I have to just say I've, I've not worked with clubs. I've worked with I've, I know people who work with clubs. I have a I think an experience of what it's like working in clubs, but I have no practical experience of having to try and action those kind of changes. So in that respect, I'm almost certainly likely to be pie in the sky about this. But I think that there should be at least that desire to to be able to influence your coaching staff and then with the players to be able to do stuff in such a way that you're actually engaging them because you're telling a simple story. You're not worried about saying everything. You're just saying, okay, we, we're going to go into this game. We're not going to be able to have the players thinking about every little thing that the opposition are going to be doing. But if we can get them going in thinking, oh, in certain phases of the game, they're weak in this area, try and exploit it and make them understand like how you might be able to do that or why they might the opposition might be weaker there. And if you can do that in an easy to understand way, engaging them the whole time in, in a few minutes, then that's that, that surely that's all an analyst can hope to do, right? Yeah, I think there's so many similarities. Credibility piece, these environments are senior environments are so unforgiven that if your credibility goes and if you waffle and you know you're cooked and then every time someone rolls in, you know, they've already unfollowed you per se on their threads, you know, and you, you can't land information. Um one thing that I wanted to ask you was about we we talked briefly about the World Cup and I'm always interested I think the the English uh, landscape is probably uh, in terms of content and football that's that's where we're probably a few years behind you data again was xg has come in to now it's a post game report or it's wherever it is and people can see it and they get more education around it obviously monday night football was top class or is top class what what advances if any do you think you know the the public tv sphere has made in the last 5 years in the uk yeah i mean monday night football i think is leaps and bounds ahead of everything else have obviously a huge amount of advantages so they've got some great analysts working for them they also have access to like uh, the, the the broadcast rights for film which is always going to make your analysis better like the amount of hoops we have to jump around to explain what's happening on a football pitch using like a board and screenshots and stuff is it does make it harder to engage people but they do they do a really good job of that i think um and i think that in general like the broadcast analysis has been quite good this World Cup. I've not watched a huge amount of it, but there's been a few standout features. I know that in one of the South Korea games, they gave up a goal. I think it would have been against Ghana. Yeah, so they gave up a goal from a free kick from a wide area and South Korea set their wall basically on the edge of the six-yard box uh, and Ghana scored from the resulting free kick and the analysts on, um, I think it was ITV, did a really good job of of actually breaking down why you in those situations you should set your wall higher up um really nice little vignette that fits nicely into a half-time show um so we're definitely seeing more of that um but again it's it, the, the the problem is with all of these things and this is why it's easy for me a public analyst who has been given a platform to be able to be creative and spend the time to be creative it's easy for me to sit there and pontificate about how these other companies can do things better but there, there's always a context for everything these these people are operating in a 
in a context that has existed for years, right? So ITV have been putting out football coverage for years. They've been doing it in, in the same sort of way. And then having to do it at a high, well, not now, I guess, ITV, but like BT and, and Sky, they're having to do this at a high rate of games. They don't have the time to sort of sit down and think, right, how do we do this better all the time? Uh, and there's a sense in which that's true for club analysts as well, right? You're always flying by the seat of your pants. You don't have the time to really innovate as you're going along in, in big ways. It's always going to be small. It's going to be small little changes that you can make. So I, I accept that these these things are always like gradual. They're always tricky to, to sort of happen when you're, what's the famous analogy is like building the plane while you're flying or something, right? That's what those those things are, are difficult to do. And we have the same thing at TIFO as well. We're, we're always wanting to innovate, but you're always in that that moment where you're, you're having to do functional stuff as well as creative stuff. And, and when push comes to shove, the functional stuff is always going to be important because more important, because if you don't do that functional stuff, you don't have anything to be creative about because your, your business is just going to die. So, um, but I think that the broadcast we're seeing those gradual changes in the broadcast sphere, certainly in terms of, in terms of like the tactical aspect, you, you mentioned data and like expected goals and, and, and stats and stuff like that. And I think part of the problem, with that is that it's much harder to find the people who can tell those stories in that sphere. So, you know, the tactical stuff, you can be like, these footballers lived in an environment where they were being told this stuff, regardless of how much they, they took in. So you can find people who will do that. But with the, the data stuff, there just isn't really that, that kind of public facing, you know, broadcaster who's going to sit down and, and explain this stuff to people as well. But um, I think a lot of it just comes down to ingraining people with these ideas and people People know what expected goals are now, right, generally in the public. And that's happened simply by slapping expected goals onto the screen and having a few explainers here and there. Um, and hopefully more of this stuff will, will start happening. But again, like, like you say, telling the story is the most important. And unless we're doing that in any sort of compelling way, then, yeah, things will never improve. Brilliant. Brilliant. OK, last last few for you. Um, let's say there's an obviously, now, I think one of the great things with the community is that you've now got young people coming out of college that are now aspiring to work clubs and don't need a 10 year background and playing and they're now coming in straight or even coaching just say right I want to be an analyst I want to work at a club you mentioned at the start about like you can build credibility you can do quality analysis in on Twitter and on, on social media what advice would you have for that person to kind of map that out for a year or two yeah it's a good good question um I always feel as though I ended up doing this by accident. So I don't really feel like I have any sort of really useful directed advice for people who want to do this sort of thing. But I guess a couple of mantras that I have, one is like quality is always better than quantity. It's, it's not rocket science, but you should never feel the need to, to pump stuff out. Um, again, I think what we've talked about all the way through this in terms of telling stories is a really good way of making sure that you avoid that, that pitfall of just putting stuff out. Um, because I will never put out like a thread on, on Twitter or write anything or make a video unless I feel as though there's a story there to tell. Um, and that's a really good way of sort of safeguarding yourself from just putting out too much stuff. Um, again, it's not, I think I, I have an appreciation that when you're young and you're trying to break into the sphere, what you want people to do is be aware that you're au fait with the conversations that are happening in social media spaces. So one of the things I've noticed is that I will, there's, there's a lot of coattailing that happens in social media. So I'll put out a thread on something and there's a lot of people who have got big accounts on Twitter who will just, what they'll do is they'll just add a tweet to my thread at the end and be like, yes, I noticed this and, and this, right? So that the, the, the idea behind a lot of those approaches, I think, is more 
yes, I knew all of this stuff already and here's a little bit extra, um, which is fine. Like if you want to do that, if you want to build a big following, that's one way of doing it um, by, by sort of, again, Emperor's New Clothing your way. But the, the thing is, is that if you, approach, if you approach things in that way, if you bullshit your way through, there's always going to be context where you get to where you can't bullshit anymore. Um, I'm in a I'm in a context all the time where I cannot bullshit. I need to know what I'm talking about because if I don't, then it becomes very aware. People become very aware of that very quickly. So, I think the important thing for me is like find your story, tell your story, uh, and if your story is good, then then you will gain more followers on on social media, and you will um, you will you know, pick up traction in that way. But you don't need to pretend to be smarter than you are because it's not about being smart. Like the thing that people like about me is not me being smart or noticing, noticing things that other people don't notice because I don't. What people I think like about my stuff is that I communicate it well. And that's what like my my audience, I don't want them to come out being like, oh, John knows things. I want them to come out and be like, I was entertained by that thread. I learned something new. I I was I read all the way through that thread. Even something as simple as that is like that's what I want want to achieve. So I think when you're young, it's really easy to mistake people thinking you're smart with you being good, and that's never it's never the never the way. Um, and uh, another way of uh, I think making a name for yourself in that in, in social media is to network with people on social media. And again, that's a that's not about pretending to be smarter than you are. It's about having interesting conversation with people who are interesting. And then there's a, there's a lot of communities. Actually, I, I I really get encouraged by there's a there's a younger community of of, of guys who are at university who um, write about games and stuff and chat with one another. And some of the conversations they have are really high level, really interesting. But they're a group of guys who are constantly engaging with one another, and you can you can tell that that benefits them because they're bouncing off ideas off each other, and 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 their ideas are, are clearly benefiting from it so again that's another thing to do find people who are like-minded have the same sorts of interest in the things that you're doing and 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 do that do that that sort of stuff and then the other mantra that i have is and it winds a lot of people up but it's it's better to be interesting than it is to be correct now it winds people up because people think you know there's nothing worse than being wrong and you know there's an extent i'm not saying that being interesting trumps being wrong like there's a venn diagram of interesting things that are also true um but I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to, to say something and then have someone contradict you and say you're wrong and admitting to, to that fact. Um, it's much more important for you to be gaining um, respect through being interesting, having interesting ideas. Sometimes they may be overreaching ideas. Sometimes they may be ideas that don't take you anywhere. But you're always going to benefit the, the general community online if you are having those more interesting ideas than if you're occasionally putting out something that ends up being wrong. Uh, and I think Jamie Hamilton is a, just a great example of that. Not, this is not me saying that Jamie is wrong, by the way, but Jamie has just fascinating ideas. Often, I think his ideas are just off the wall. And and I'm just like, I can't believe that you would even think this. But what I do think they do is that they make people think, they, they take the conversation out of its boring parameters that we're always talking in, and it just puts it into a whole new stratosphere. And it benefits the community in, in that way as well. Those things are way more important for me, I think, than 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 sort of being like, oh, can I make good viz? Can I uh, can I you know talk about half spaces and and talk about hybrid pressing systems? Like those things are important, but everyone can do that. It's not rocket science. 
you spend enough time watching tape, you can be as good an analyst as, as most club analysts, I think. I believe that. Um, but the, in terms of the analysis side of things, what club analysts and public analysts who are at the top level are really good at is the communication side of things. You can analyze games all you like and, and think and see the most wonderful nuance and, and stuff in it. But if you can't communicate why that's important, why that matters to the game, why it matters to the coach, why it matters to the players, or why it matters to a, just a public audience who are watching, then who cares? No one cares. It's not important. Um, so the, the really important thing is to work on your communication um, and, and make sure that people and, and by communication, it's not just communicating your ideas, but also doing it in a way which engages people and, and brings them along for the journey as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. I should I should finish on that, but I, I'm not. I want one more. Uh, the, the piece that you said you came across almost by accident. How did you come across the, the role by accident? Yeah, so basically, I'm a failed academic. I um, I and I went a long way through. I, I almost completed a PhD in philosophy and theology. I spent six years doing that um, and lecturing at various universities, and then at Cambridge, um, right? You went to Cambridge, though. Yeah, yeah, I, I did grad work at Cambridge, and um, while I was there, actually, I ended up coaching the women's football team. So I, I did my undergrad at Andrews. I played for the first team there. So I'd gone through college, uh, well, university. Um, the, the university football system and the coaching there. Now, obviously, British university football is not the same level as US college football, but um, we still had decent coaches, and, and we went through like a we went through a, a decent, I think, a fairly rigorous sort of program of, of training and stuff. So I, I picked up a lot of stuff from from that. Um, but went to Cambridge and then coached the women's team there, um, and that was it. Was funny because that's sort of how I got into the the tactics side of things. Right? It was I was I was definitely more of a football man than a than a than a tactics nerd to start with but obviously when I started I got thrown in doing doing the women's stuff I coached them for four seasons um I ended up having to learn about tactics uh, necessarily but I was an academic so then I, I sort of threw myself back in, back into my studies for a little bit um but was much more interested in football media then so I was doing football media moonlighting on the side um and ended up luckily when I when I got to the end of the, the PhD and decided I, I just wasn't going to finish it I, I got offered a job working for a football media outlet and sort of fell in that way um, then did sort of football media stuff was made redundant but was lucky enough to be able to freelance and I worked for a football um, consultancy basically a data consultancy um, so again I got to see another side of the of the industry there but um, I'd been running weirdly running a Leeds United um, fan media channel really which focused on tactics and stats um over, over the course of time that Marcelo Bielsa was at Leeds which was really like that was the real tactical education that I got because I by the end of his time here I just knew Marcelo Bielsa's football inside out um and that was a real that's actually maybe a, another good piece of advice for for youngsters who want to come through I I learned football with Marcelo Bielsa and Mar Marcelo Bielsa is obviously like an outlier coach no, no one really does anything like he does but that even just knowing one coach really well it then allowed me to understand what was going on with other coaches so it gave me the bedrock to it's, it's like learning a language if you if you learn one language really well outside of your native tongue it makes it easier to learn other languages and I learned Marcelo Bielsa really well so it made me I think a lot better being able to analyze other coaches um yeah and so I I I've been doing a lot of tactical stuff, mainly online, but not in a not in a not in a big way. And then got picked up by Tifo, and then that's the platform that, that I needed. So I was very very lucky. Um, it's worth saying, like, 
a lot of people ask me like how do you become successful and i'm like well i don't know if you find out please tell me but it, it it's you do have to be you have to be lucky you, you make your own luck but you also need a huge chunk of it too so it's all just about making sure that you're telling those stories that you're being interesting that you're putting in the hard work like you can't bs you've got to just watch the tape and if you do that you may you may be lucky enough to to get picked up by someone fascinating um bielsa what what progressions is bielsa's football bielsa's football or did you see it kick on and evolve almost at leeds I think there was like solutions to problems that arose, but I think, I mean, by the end, the the majority of the fan base were just frustrated by his intransigence. Um, he just, yeah, he didn't change. But so the big thing is that the Bielsa users are pretty much um, the most aggressive form of man to man pressing that you can adopt. So everyone's player to player apart from upfront. Well, he wants to have a player back, right? So he has a libero, so he's got like a little bit of defensive cover at the back, and that has to come from somewhere. So it comes from up front, which is furthest away from your own goal, right? So one of the strikers will have two pressing responsibilities. Everyone else is just player for player across the field. And you can break that down super easily just by, you know, dragging players and creating space for, for the unmarked centre-back to run into, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there, there's definitely... Pro there's definitely caveats to what happened at the end because part of the other problem with Marcelo Bielsa is he just never refreshes the squad so you had a squad who was just burned out and they were expected to just play this really aggressive high intensity um high energy sapping man marking system and I think they just they lost faith with it but um that that's the sort of context um that was that never changed he did that all the time pretty much we did see attempts to sort of mitigate some of the problems so um, slightly, Stuart Dallas played central midfield for us for a bit, and he was he played more of a zonal uh, approach in the midfield. So the idea was that is that he would track his player if his player ran outside the central space, he would sort of stay stay there to make sure that he could cover the the centre backs running through. Uh, but that that was about it. But in terms of uh, in terms of the um, in possession stuff, there was definitely like progression, and there was definitely role-based stuff as well so some of the players he had at his disposal were good at good at certain things and not others but um even by the end i think like it was just sad because like the we we played some of the best football i've ever ever seen well it was the best football i've ever seen leeds play um but by the end because the the squad had just burned out we we became very much um very direct counter-attack inshallah football um and and it was sort of sad for it to go that way but i think that's 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 the um the what is it the, the 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 candle that burns half as long burns brightest or something or whatever it is that's what you get with Bielsa you get like two or three seasons of just incredible football but then you have to recognize that you have to move him on because you're going to have to regenerate your squad and and he's not like a long-term manager but it was it was a beautiful period and it, that's what got me back into football in a big way and in many respects ruined football for me because I've never really been able to enjoy being a fan as much as I have uh, when he was at my club yeah, I actually made the pilgrimage over there and just before lockdown, and I just went to went to and it was the championship, and I mm -hmm. just said, right, I've got to, I'll do. I always go over in England, see a few people, but I'm like, I got to go up to Leeds, and it was, man, it was electric, just electric football. Yeah, mm -hmm. first time yeah. I've ever felt that. Sometimes you go to like I would go to 
as an Irish growing up in Ireland, you'd go over to Old Trafford or you'd go to White Hart Lane, you'd go to a big ground to experience it. And you always felt that the crowd was impacting the team. And it was one of the few occasions that I felt that the team was impacting the crowd. You know, it was really cool. Mm. Yeah, no, that's definitely a bucket list item that you, yeah. you're well worth having ticked off. John, I've kept you long enough. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. I uh, was really excited to chat to you and it's, it's lived up to the hype. Fantastic. Uh, thank you for having me on. I hope I haven't waffled too much. I feel <laughs> as though I've just preached the whole time. Though. No, no, brilliant. Hey, massive fan of what you do. Keep it going uh, on behalf of uh, a lot of people who follow your work and learn from it. Great stuff. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm really, really a fan of the stuff that you're putting out as well. So same right back at you. Cheers, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.